right, let's hear God's word together. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to her, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with us, and we're glad that they're here. They come every Sunday night and every Sunday morning and every other time we gather. So I just want to welcome them and uh, pray to them. Father, you're present with us and we are your children. Speak to us. Precious Lord Jesus, eternal Son, you are indeed our Savior. Will you please continue to save us? And gracious indwelling Spirit, it is not possible for us to really want to hear your word, respond to it in any kind of faithful, loving way, and certainly not want to be transformed by it unless you move in your power in our hearts. Please do so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, in Esther chapter 4, if you have a Bible, you need to have it, have it open to check up whether I'm actually being faithful to the Word of God or not. Don't assume that I am. Uh, the situation is dark and threatening. The wicked plan is firmly in place. The cosmic forces of evil are moving against God and his people. And the intent is to destroy the Jews and all salvation history. There must be no savior, and humanity must be destroyed. After all, humanity is created in the image of God. Humanity is, therefore, those who must give honor and glory to God and lead creation in that way. Humanity must be destroyed. We can lose the force of all of this, though, can't we? Uh, we know how the story ends with Esther. And we know the timeline that stretches beyond the Old Testament into the New Testament to the death and resurrection of Jesus and that he's returning in all his majesty and victory. But we can still lose the power of all of this. Who will save us now? Who will save us now personally? in the life that confronts us? Who will save us now as a church as we enter into a new phase? Who will save us now as a nation with all the kind of things that are going on within it? Who will save the world? Who will save the climate? The climate? Our answer, of course, is God, because we're signed up evangelicals. Uh, but actually, it's the crisis that tells us whether we actually believe that or not, which is where we are in Esther chapter 4. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo, the hobbit, is on a mission to save humanity by destroying the ring of power. When he wears the ring of power or truth, he sees with horrible clarity the evil powers against him and humanity. Yet he also understands the certainty that his mission must be accomplished on Mount Doom with the destruction of that ring. So with the, with the ring of truth, Scripture itself, Ephesians 4, uh, Esther 4 in particular, let us understand the horrible, with horrible clarity evil and let us understand the certainty that Jesus has indeed won, and in him we win. Three things to say. One, notice with me the spiritual distress of verses 1 to 3 in particular. We now see and feel the grief in God's people at what evil has done. Mordecai leads the way, and the Jewish nation follows him. All are dressed in mourning clothes, sackcloth and ashes. They were all crying aloud with bitterness and in lament. And all of this was done in public, so all could see there was no complacency with evil as far as Mordecai was concerned, or the Jewish nation was concerned. No complacency, no indifference. This was a nonviolent rejection of the decree that Haman had got the king to agree to. It was a peaceful protest that drew attention to the injustice of it all. 
Here is spiritual distress, as this Haman movement was against God and his purposes for the nations. I wonder what distresses our lives. There are all kinds of things that may distress our lives, but I wonder if the things of God, as they are opposed within our nation, within our school, within our university, within our work context, uh, or wherever else it may show itself, I wonder if that gives us distress. Yes, personal distress is understandable, the hurts and the pains of life, but are we distressed that the things that go on around us are against God and against people and therefore is actually an evil intent to destroy humanity? Now, and that may sound over the top, but if you read the Bible with any degree of care, that is what is going on. We must not be naive about evil. And Esther won't allow us to be naive. So what is our reaction to that? Who can save us now? Well, only God can save us. Yes, we believe this. And where does that start? And where does that continue? It starts and continues as God's people cry out in faithful distress to God, to the God to come and save I did promise to modulate my voice. I suddenly remembered. <laughs> I'll try to be chatty. Well, initial, Esther's initial distress in verse 4 is to reach out to Mordecai, but she does so wrongly. Uh, Esther is lovely, and she's beautiful, and she is a most important figure in this story but she doesn't get it in chapter 4. She sends out normal clothes to her uncle Mordecai. Now she doesn't know why he's dressed the way she is. Uh, She's not got the facts yet. She will get them. But she thinks that if she gives him clothes, he can take off this embarrassing-looking mourning uh, regalia and he can blend back in to the culture. You see, because spiritual distress looks odd, and for her it needed a cultural answer to calm down, blend back in, don't cause any trouble. And her answer was clothes. Reminded me of Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. And they thought they could deal with the whole issue by just putting on fig leaves. We need to have spiritual distress because the purposes of God are being attacked. And that was at the heart of Mordecai. And it's what he leads Esther to now. So we see her second, second point, moving forward under God. Moving forward under God. God is the one who saves the situation, as we know, but we see Esther moving forward to be involved with God. 
Uh, Esther will show her true identity as God directs her path to save the situation by the end of the chapter. But interestingly, in chapter 2, verse 10, Esther had hidden her identity in obedience to Mordecai. Whether that was right or that was wrong will not uh, delay us this evening. She has hidden her identity. She is one of God's people to bless the nations. You get that from Abraham in Genesis 12. Indeed, the Jews were in exile due to their idolatry and worshiping like the nations. They had taken off their identity as God's people. We just want to be like everybody else. So we see Esther moving to live out her real identity under God in the crisis. Because this is not a morality tale. This is indeed gospel history showing us how God saves. Mordecai gives the full facts, 7 and 8, to Haggath uh, uh, Hatech, um, because he goes out to inquire with regard to what's going on on behalf of Esther. And Mordecai basically says in verses 7 and 8, I want you, I want, you need to know here's a whole load of money being given to the king. Here is the decree that has been issued. And you need to go now to the king and beg for mercy. Esther is being called in verses 7 and 8 to move forward under the saving God. Yet Esther is not strong, and she's not brave. Well, not to start with. And she does not embrace this saving identity. And indeed, in verses 10 to 11, she raises a serious obstacle to her involvement in this way. Listen to these words. All the king's servants know and the people of the king's provinces, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one the king hold, that the king holds out the golden scepter, so he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. End of discussion. Reasonable authority. Don't need to do it. And after all, could she really depend on the mercy of a tyrant? It's the identity issue here. And we need to just spend a moment on it for it is actually integral to the story. God will decide who she is but she doesn't go there first. After all, understandably, she's threatened by death. And I wouldn't be too keen to allow God's calling on me to shape me if I'm going to be threatened by death. Think again, Lord. There are only three possibilities about who, uh, about who decides who we are. Who we are is our self-understanding as to why we live on this earth. There are three possibilities. One, others. Well, Esther was a lovely woman, and I'm sure she was a joy to have in the palace. 
That's what others would have said and did say. Well, the second possibility is myself. Esther here, I think, alludes to the fact that she has understood that she's the queen and she must conform to the palace rules. But what happens when things change? And what happens when the self-authority collapses under the change, as it does here? There is no eternal supportive authority for her with others or in herself. And that's true for you and me, by the way. But moving swiftly on, because the, only th the third possibility of who decides who we are is God and his truth. And it's Mordecai in verses 12 to 14 who takes out the ring of truth, if you like, and speaks into Esther's life. It's not oppressive and it's not harmful. He's God's agent helping her to move forward under the saving God. Listen to the words. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? These verses, what are they saying? They're saying it is a false sense of security to believe that I can live in a secular bubble and be safe from evil. It is a false sense of security to believe that I can live in a secular, materialistic bubble and be safe from evil. And therefore, these verses inform us that God will save whether Esther commits to her identity under God or not. It is the safeguard for us as individuals, for us as a church, for us as gospel churches. Whether we commit to our identity or not, God will save. But Esther is invited to rethink her identity. The royal position is not for her selfish enjoyment, but to be God's agent in his saving purpose. And Mordecai poses it as a question worth considering. Maybe you've come to the kingdom to be queen for this reason. It's not easy living for God today, is it? It's a, it's a bit of a tough thing, isn't it? For all kinds of reasons that all of us could think up now. But who knows? It's worth considering that we've been brought to the kingdom to live under King Jesus for such a time as this. And Esther moves towards her identity, and it's a beautiful thing. Because that's my third point. We're on the last stretch. God wins out in Esther, verses 15 through 17. She's a flawed woman, as we have seen, but she is so beautiful in these verses, isn't she? If we thought she was physically beautiful and she was regally beautiful, well, spiritually she shines here. 
We see the victory of God in her life as the beautiful spirit, the spiritual beauty of grace is just displayed in her. Esther walks in faith to discover that God is greater than any king, greater than any wicked man, greater than any human decree, greater than any cultural movement. That's what's happening. Now we know how it plays out. Yes, of course we do. But that's what's happening. If she sits in her room and just surrounds herself with her secular bubble, she's never going to see that. She's never going to prove that for herself in her personal life, in her national life. You've got to move under God to discover how great God is. We're not running a God admiration society in Egbert Community Church where we sing great hymns and go home and say, well, that was nice. We are those, and we've been reminded of this, that we want God so to speak to us and so to deal with us in all that we do and say with each other so that we go out and we live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that's what Esther does. She calls for serious prayer in verse 16. Three day nights and three days of fasting because seeking after God and the merciful acceptance of the king was more important than food. And many of us like our food. It is a focused approach to concentrated community prayer because the only person who can save us is... God. And therefore, if we really believe that, then we will pray with even greater earnestness to the God who keeps his promises. Ah, oh, but we need to do more than prayer. So they say, well, I agree. Yes, we have to get practical. And Esther, believe it or not, gets practical. <laughs> Who are we trusting in? Our schemes and dreams, our practicalities, our structures, our rituals, for the living God. And Esther lived out what she called for in others, in verse 16. She imposed this on her circle of women. Three days and nights of prayer. Well, that wasn't a lot of fun, was it? But you see, maybe Esther's beginning to sense that she's in a cosmic struggle. And if you believe you're at war, that changes how you live. And with this spiritual strength obtained in prayer from the sovereign God, she now moves forward on the third day to break the law and lay her life down. If I perish, I perish is famous, isn't it? What she's saying is, your will be done, not mine. She surrenders to God's identity. The ring of truth and power are indeed ringing in her mind and heart. And she embraces it. Nothing is more important than serving the living God in all of our life.
And we can see this much more clearly than Esther because we're way down the timeline now, aren't we? We're beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's now been ascended and victorious, and he's returning again in all his glory, isn't he? The king went to his death, and he lived out his saving identity, chosen by the Father. He now reigns victoriously, clothed in majesty. That's our identity, to live for the king until we die and go to be with Jesus. And we need to see it, therefore, at the cross as we will come round the table. We will need to see clearly wickedness. And you see wickedness most clearly at the cross. Jesus died for my wickedness. It really was that bad. And yet, on the cross, not only was wickedness paid for, but salvation emerges, and a saved people like you and me come out of it. Who can save us now? Four lessons, very brief ones. Nothing stops the plan of God. Salvation history is given to us over hundreds and hundreds of years from the Old Testament into the New Testament and beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we can see nothing stops the plan of God. Political power, military might, immense wealth, cultural ideology. This gospel will not kneel for anyone and it will not be defeated by anything. Nothing stops the plan of God. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We did it this morning. Well, how's the will of God done in heaven then? Perfectly, gloriously, joyfully, sacrificially. So we're now saying, let your will be done on earth perfectly, gloriously, joyfully, sacrificially. And so therefore we learn to die so that others in the culture come alive in Christ. Hmm. Thirdly, God tells us who we are. I'm going to finish with this. Well, I may. Oh, okay. We'll see. Uh, we, are, <laughs> we are redeemed people on earth who know, show his rule and his victory in life. We do not get to decide. I will finish with this. We do not get to decide who we are. Others don't tell us who we are. My innermost feelings don't tell me who I am. God and his truth tells me who I am. I love um, my granddaughters, and with Isla, six-year-old Isla, I have sat and watched Frozen, uh, on many, many occasions, Princess, El Princess Elsa, you know. And that famous song, Let It Go, if that's the only song my six-year-old granddaughter knows, and if she lives it out, she's in trouble. Because God's not telling her who she is. You know how it goes, don't you? Millions of people know how it goes. The swirling storm inside her. She's been keeping it in because she's trying to be a good girl. 
But now she's decided to let it go. That's the strong decision that she makes. Let it go is the refrain, isn't it? And then she says, I'll rise like the break of dawn. That perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day. I would prefer her to have another song to sing for her life. Here it is. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am a child of God. Free at last, he's ransomed me. His grace runs deep while I was a slave to sin. Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. To follow Jesus costs us everything. As spiritually dead people, we get raised to life. As spiritually raised people, we learn to die. And we see Mark chapter 8 worked out in our discipleship lives. What is Mark 8? I think you might know, but I'm going to read it as I finish. You see, when we come to follow Jesus, it demands everything. He's not asking for something. He's asking for everything. He's asking for all of you and me. And that's what he said to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, and they get to prove it. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he turned to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've got to give the entirety of yourself up, as I must. And I must give the entirety of myself in every part of my being to Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If I decide to save my life and live for me and my way and my preferences, I will lose my life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So who will save us now? Well, the answer, as we come to the cross, either we turn away from the cross and we live for ourselves, or we cross the line over into the amazing love of God in Christ and know that it's him who saves us. And then, I can live for him. I can be like Esther. I can say, well, here I go. If I perish, I perish. Because I know the God who saves. Let us pray. Father, you tell us who we are. We turn away from telling ourselves who we are. 
We turn away from letting others tell us who we are. You are the one who knows us and loves us. You are the one who sent your one and only son to bleed and die for us, to make us your children. We are not forsaken. You are for us, not against us. And if you call us, and you do call us, to live out your identity in our lives, in the workaday world, in the study world, in the retirement world, or wherever else you will put us, married or single, you tell us who you are. And that is freeing and that is fulfilling in a broken world. A world that doesn't know who they are. A world that doesn't know what it means to be human. Yet in this simple room, around a table, we know exactly what it means to be human. And it is a joy to do so. We offer our lives to you. Lord, we would lose them for the sake of yourself in order that you might save them to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.